listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. I'm Mike Kinnon. I am a... Here at Oasis, we're actually, we don't call them members, we call them covenant partners. So I'm a covenant partner here at Oasis, and we've been coming here for quite a few years, and I kind of just fill in wherever work's needed. So I, I look for work. It's something that we talk about at my... Kind of watching over the little ones and stuff like that, watching over the youth, uh, making sure that they're doing the things right thing, the right way. We'll get more into that later on, for those that you know kind of what I do. But before we begin, I'm going to get into the scripture. I've got to put on my old man spectacles, so bear with me. And here we go. In Luke 14, 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to him, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be, not, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, The man began to build, the one's not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king of war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he, has, that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As the scriptures say. So before we begin, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get right into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and thank you for the many blessings you've given to us. We're thankful for that opportunity we have to come together as a church and fellowship with one another and celebrate all the things that are going on in our lives today. Uh, Many people are going to be celebrating an event tonight, uh, watching on TV and may their team win. But ultimately, God, we're here just to celebrate the fact that we have life and we have it more abundantly through you. So Father, we thank you for that. We ask that you just be with us as we um, review your scripture, review your word, and find it uh, some life application for us this week of how we can apply it to our lives, but then also how we can use it to reach out to others. So, Father, we thank you for all those things, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, <clears throat> what we're doing is, is uh, Pastor Kevin, what he does is every February, he goes back and he serves in the children's area. So, he asked uh, four guys to come up here and to, to preach for him, to fill in for him. Um, today, unfortunately, you get me, so you, know, you just have to bear with that. So what you're seeing, if you don't like it, if you're a first-time guest with us today, come back. The next week, you'll probably have a little bit better sermon, and then when Kevin's back here in March, you're going to be like, okay, this is what it's really like. So um, I have some ground rules that i got to lay down because my wife, she likes to remind me of certain things that I've got to make sure that I tell the audience. And so one of them was that she's like, Make sure you tell them what you do for a living, because some of the um, stories I may tell may be kind of out there, and you'd be like thinking, wow, this guy is really way out there. Part of what I do is, is um, 
my secular job is, is I work for the Polk County Sheriff's Office. I'm a sergeant in the patrol uh, section, and I patrol right now the area of Lake Wales and um, kind of like all the way down to almost Avon Park, all the way out to River Ranch. So it's a, probably one of our, it's actually our largest district. Sometimes we can go from one call to another, and it takes us about 45 minutes to get there. So back up for my deputies. I have eight deputies that I watch over. All of them are basically 19 to 24-year-olds. They all have guns and badges, and so that's a pretty dangerous thing that you may think. Wow, we give 20-year-olds all these things and all these tools. They have tasers and mace and all this stuff. They're good, they're good folks. Um, we train them well, and we also, you know, they have, we, we hire the best. We hire people that come from places like here at Oasis, and um, we just instill, you know, in them, you know, they have, they have a lot of that pride that we have, the, the traditions of Polk County and those kind of things, the family values that are important to us. And so when we go through that hiring process, we are trying to make sure that we, you know, hired simply the best. And so you hear our sheriff talk about that quite a bit. And so in my profession, I do run in all kinds of different things. Um, when I first started, I worked in the jail, and that was a very interesting experience for me because, like I said, we do hire simply the best people that really don't associate with people that hang out in jails. And so I spent two and a half years learning what it is to be around those kind of individuals. And uh, just the, the, best, the best thing I learned was is I learned that I have a tool that I carry around with me all the time, and that's my tongue. And I can use my tongue to de-escalate situations and really talk to people and relate to them. And so that was really important for me to learn that lesson. Not to go right to my, my Batman belt that we have and all those kind of tools, but to really use my tongue. And, and also, I use a lot what I've learned in here in the church. I've learned compassion, to love other people, to really care, care and concern for them, and to, to see them in the way that Jesus sees them. And so when I do that... I can really build a quick rapport with them most of the time. Now, sometimes they get out of hand, and so then they got to pay the price. So they're in the back of a squad car, and off they go. But I spent two and a half years in the jail, and then I went on to um, patrol. And patrol is where I was really gunning for. I was wanting to go out there and, and patrol the streets and have a good time. It was a childhood dream of mine. I didn't actually start the police academy until I was 38 years old, so I was already an old man, and now I'm a really old man. Because it's been aged, it's aged me and all those kind of things. Before that, I was a computer programmer. I sat in a cubicle. I was making good money and all those kind of things. And so I took a big pay cut and a lot of sacrifice on my family's part and all those kind of things. Going from working nine to five and all those, you know, just I had, I had nice luxury that I just was able to, to partake in. But then now I'm working night shifts and they're having to struggle schedules and all those kind of things. So they've had to sacrifice quite a bit too. When I went on the patrol, I was in patrol for about a year, and then I went to um, become an undercover detective. I grew up my hair real long, and so when we first started coming here, you guys remember, I had my hair down past my shoulders, and uh, I still was bald, you know, patches up the top, but I just kind of grew more hair, so that, and then I had a beard that came down to here and all those kind of things, so I had fun doing that. And then I went to an area of computer crimes. So I used my computer programming experience in computer crimes to catch... Um, basically dirty old men that are um, really bad in the community. I really had a good time with that. I really enjoyed that. Um, But then I also learned about all the things that your kids are doing on social media. My kids hated it because I knew all the tricks that they have on their phones and stuff like that. So I kept a pretty tight rein on them. And then the sheriff one day called me up and said, hey, I need you to come up here. And so he called me up. I went up there and he said, hey, I want to promote you, but I'm going to send you back to the jail. I was like, okay, that sounds great. Um, 
So I went to, back to the jail for six months, and then six months later, I went back out to patrol. So now here I'm out there with um, my eight guys and gals, and we have a good time. And we enjoy serving you, and I enjoy that work because I, I, I feel I don't go to work. I do go out there, and I do something that I love to do, and I really make an impact in the community, and I, I feel fulfilled in my purpose and what I'm doing. So it's a fantastic thing for me. So now you know what I do. Um, now when you hear some stories, you're going to be like, okay, that's, I can understand that. Instead of, like, this guy's an accountant, and he talks about, you know, drug addicts and stuff like that. This doesn't make sense. All right, so part of the thing is, is though, is, is that as I'm going through this, um, my body's been noticing a lot of wear and tear. And a couple weeks ago, even, I went to the Chinese buffet with my wife. And um, part of the thing is, is we kind of, because of our schedules are always off set and stuff like that, I drive to the Chinese buffet, and she has to drive separate because we have to drive separate cars all the time. So I go into the Chinese buffet, and I'm just standing in line and saying, hey, I need a table for two. And she's like, senior discount? I'm like, oh, so it's showing. So I know I'm getting old. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those problems is, is that, okay, I'm getting to that point. But uh, one thing I notice, I am, I am more in line with those progressive commercials. You know, the, you made the, the parent ones where they're like talking about their parking spaces and things like that. I'm, I'm feeling the, that I, I meet those qualifications more and more often. One of those things is that I don't watch TV anymore. If I'm watching TV, I turn it to the news channel. So I'm watching the news all the time. And if you watch the news all the time, what you're noticing is, is that things are costing a lot more. And I'm also old because I'm complaining about the cost of things. I'm like, you know, a gallon of milk shouldn't cost $8. It should cost, you know, maybe 3 A gallon of gas shouldn't cost $4. It should cost, you know, hopefully, I remember, and I go back to, I remember back when it was under a dollar. And I could fill my tank up. And so the thing is, is, though, is that what we're seeing is we're seeing costs go up all over the place. Um, inflation is all in the news and those kind of things. And then we, we talk about just nationwide some of the costs that we have. So say, for example, the cost of this new uh, Build Back Better plan that the president, his um, Democrats want to push forward. You know, there's some estimates that say that that's going to cost about $1.7 trillion, all the way up to $5 trillion. And it depends on how you look at it. So if you look at just the basic bill that they're proposing, it's going to be $1.7 trillion in cost. If you look at, hey, we're going to implement this plan, and then three years later when those programs aren't being funded anymore, what are we going to do with all those jobs we created as far as um, these green energy jobs that are like, they're going to be monitoring green energy kind of things and all that stuff. And I'm not trying to be partisan, but I'm just trying to lay out some of the things that we're going to deal with. And so if you have all these people that are now employed as part of this new thing, what are you going to do with them? Are you going to let them just lose their jobs? So if you don't let them lose their jobs, you continue that program, then the cost, that, that's what the Republicans are saying, would go to $5 trillion. Well, the neat thing is, is that there's some people that work, I believe they work in basements. I'm not sure. I'm just making this up. They work in the basements of Washington, D.C., and they're put in a corner because no one really likes them. Basically, their, their rating is, is like you have IRS agent, and then you have these people that work here. And they work in the, what's called the Congressional Budget Office. And their job is to take all the ideas for bills, and what they do is they come up with an expected cost for the, for the nation. And so that what they do is, is they run the figures and run the numbers, and they determine, hey, it's going to cost this. And so they took that, 
Build Back Better America plan, they said it's going to cost basically about $1.7 trillion based upon what they knew. And they can't, they can't forecast what's going to go out, but people, then they, they add on to that. Now, not to be partisan, uh, George W. Bush, when he was president, he increased the budget as well. He, he expanded Medicare when, um, uh, when he was in office. Donald Trump expanded it. Prior to COVID, he expanded the, the federal government as well. So I'm not trying to be partisan. I'm just trying to say what we experience as costs continues to grow and grow and grow. And what politicians like to do is, is they like to come in and promise these things, but they don't have to deal with the consequences of these costs, right? And that's ultimately my point, is that they can come in and they can propose these bills and stuff like that. And then four years later, when we're, we're paying the bill, they don't have to really suffer the consequences of that because they've already made their promises, they got their votes, they, they're in office, and then they're, they're moved on to either another position or they're deflecting your attention to another area that needs concern. And there's great needs for the government. There's, there's times when the government does need to intervene, such when we did experience the pandemic. You know, obviously there was a need and all those kind of things. But what we want to do is we want to see uh, responsible spending just like we are expected in our individual lives to have responsible spending. So the whole point of this is that when I look at this compared to what I see in the Scriptures, and that's really what I'm trying to do is, is when I look at the Scriptures, I'm seeing, like, how does this particular passage apply to my life? How does it really apply to me 2,000 years later? And the thing is, is when you look at it, you notice that people really never change. They never change. They have the same attitudes. They have the same beliefs. They have the same wants and desires and all that kind of stuff. Now, they may not have the same technology, so when Jesus was running around and doing his ministry, they didn't have their, their smartphones and all those kind of things. They would be amazed at the things that we have at our fingertips right now. But deep down, their core desires have never really changed. And so if you look in Luke 14, chapter 25, you see it says, um, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. And so I want to stop right there. I want to, I want to look at why would great crowds be following him? And great crowds were following him because word was getting out that Jesus was around, and he had done some miracles, and he was healing people, and he was doing these mighty things, mighty works. And so they were talking about this guy, Jesus, and they said, he might be the one. Now, the great crowds was not a, a new thing. It wasn't the first time that great crowds had followed people throughout all the region, because there were other people who had claimed to be the Messiah. And so when other people claimed to be the Messiah, they would follow him, and um, they would, you know, he would you have this, this charismatic person who would say, yes, I'm the Messiah. And then all of a sudden they would revolt against the Romans and the Romans would squash them and put them down. Romans would have another person who'd pop up. Great crowds would start to follow them because they had this hope, they had this desire that we're looking for the Messiah. We want the Messiah to come. Now what they were doing is, is that they were expecting the Messiah to come and take care of their needs and meet their needs. Um... It was a kingdom that they, they expected Jesus to come and basically establish the kingdom as they knew that King David had done. Or even better yet, King Solomon. Maybe even better than that. Be better than King Solomon and establish his kingdom and rule on the earth for thousands and thousands of years for eternity and to have basically their status quo, but to be there um, as their Messiah and protect them over the, the nation of Israel and to establish what God had already foretold in the Old, Old Testament. But Jesus wasn't expecting to do that. Um, Jesus came back, and he, was proclaim- he came to us, and he was proclaiming something that was 
actually absolutely free. What Jesus did was he proclaimed to us the gospel. Now, I say gospel. I don't know why my wife, she doesn't like this, so you're just going to have to just bear with it. But you're going to hear me say gospel, and that's just the way it is. But gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L, it's the good news. But um, what he proclaimed was really laid out to us, and it's um, laid out in the Romans Road. So we're going to go through the Romans Road and look at the gospel and how it is basically given to us absolutely free. So in Romans 3.23, we see that we have, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for all, for all have sinned, everyone sinned, all the way back to the beginning of time when we have Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned against God, and it ruined basically what God had set up for us. God wasn't surprised at this. He knew this was coming, but it caused basically a division between us and God. And so from that time on, we have inherited sin, and so because of that, we now have separation from God. And because of that separation from God, we have to be reconciled to Him, means brought back together. So we're going to reconcile ourselves back to God. How can we do that? Well, God's going to prepare a way. But because we have sinned, in Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, and Christ uses our Lord. You say, wow, for the wages of sin is death. That's pretty harsh. Well, when you're dealing with a holy God who cannot have any form of sin in his life, um, you come to realize that death is really the ultimate penalty, that it must be paid for sin. And when you look at sin from the perspective of a holy God, you see that really sin is something that there's... What we do, unfortunately, is we like to categorize sin. We like to put sin in different levels. And so we say, you know, if I told a white lie, that's down here. But I didn't. I never murdered anybody. You know, that's way up here. And so... In my, in my world, what I deal with is I deal with people who have sinned. They've broken the law or things like that. And so they like to justify it. And so we're great justifiers. We like to say, well, you know, I went down this path. And, you know, it started out by me, you know, kind of doing this. And then I went to this. And so we graduate, right? So we as individuals, we all know that we kind of graduate and we do things. But then also God's examining our own hearts. And our own hearts, he tells us, you know, things like, if we covet another woman and those kind of things, that's basically the same as adultery in, in his eyes because he is holy God. And so we, while we may think that, oh, the wages of sin is death, that's a pretty harsh statement. For a holy God, it, it makes absolute sense. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 5, 8, it continues on saying, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. So, this is one thing that really has become evident to me is, is that as I examine all these kind of things, especially when I was working in computer crimes, I dealt with some of the most horrific images and videos. I'm not going to get into the gory graphics of it, but there's evil out there. Pure evil. Those things haunt um, me still to this day. I kind of kind of push those things down and I can talk to you know, my friends and stuff like that and you know, you can work those things out, but I've got to tell you that there's some pure evilness out there that are behind what they think is closed doors. And the unfortunate thing is, is that I know God is right there and he, he sees that stuff as well. And I think, wow, how, how amazing it makes the gospel and the, the grace that God extends. When he went to the cross to die for that, 
that for somebody I would cast away and throw them in the deepest, darkest dungeon because they don't even deserve to die. I want them to suffer as long as they can because of what they do to some of these victims that I, I've seen. But Jesus loved them enough to die for that. How much more amazing is that he is willing to die for me? And the fact that I'm, I'm in the same category as those guys as well. It's like, a, it's like, wow. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then in Romans 10, 9, it says, Because if you confess your sins with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead, you will be saved. So here it is. This is going to cost you. You have to understand. One is, is it doesn't really cost you anything because Jesus is Lord. Christ is Lord over everything. And one day he will come back on his horse and it'll be on fire and have a flaming sword and have tattoos on his thigh and all those kind of things. And it'll be really righteous and stuff like that. And it'll be like, get my horse. I'm going to go back and take over. Then everyone's going to know that he is Lord. Truly and surely. They're going to be, they're going to be amazed. Like, oh, I was wrong. Sorry, my bad. But he is going to come back. But what we have to do is, all we have to do is confess the fact that we do know that this to be true. That we have to know that Jesus is Lord. And we have to believe in our heart. Now, the believe in our heart part, that's the catch. I have um, friends of mine who worked in the ministry, and I, I was in full-time ministry for a while, too. And we would always, you know, we, we want to see numbers. We want to see production. We, we want to see growth in the church. And so we would, we would do all these programs and do all these things, and, you know, we'd have like a rainy day on a Sunday, a Super Bowl Sunday, and no one would show up at church. Now, I'm grateful all you guys came out, because I'm like, wow, this is great. Great turnout. All right? But we expect, you know, hey, we're going to do these great things. We'd, we'd have um, get-togethers and grill-outs and those kind of things, and we'd try and share the love of Christ. And then sometimes we would have events where, you know, they would go off, and then they would be like, oh, we got 5,000 saved. And you'd be like, oh, that's, that's fantastic. We'd be cheerful about that. But then truly, you know, when you think about it later on, you're like, how of them really believe it in their heart, though? How many of it really took root and that they truly latched onto that and now they're going to be a new creation in, in Christ? Or did they just have some kind of feeling and then just, just an emotional response and they woke up the next day and like, oh, well, that was kind of crazy and then kind of move on with their life. Now, I'm not one who's going to sit here and say, you know, this person's a Christian and this person's not a Christian because... That's not for me to decide. That's only for God to decide. But the freeness of the gospel, the cost of the gospel being free, is, is that you really have to ultimately just accept the fact that he is Lord and then believe in your heart. <clears throat> and then you will be saved. And in Romans ten thirteen, it continues. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right? So I don't judge other people who say that they've been saved. I don't, you know, all those kind of things. Now they're, they're God's issue. They're God's concern. I still love them. And if I see them kind of not going in the next area where we're going to go into, I try and lovingly kind of push them that way. But that does bring up the next cost. And that's what Jesus was really talking about when he was talking to the crowds. Because he saw these great crowds and they were looking for this Messiah who was coming along. And they were looking for this Messiah to be a certain thing that they wanted him to be. And in Luke, verse 25, he says, He turned to them and he said, 
Therefore, if anyone... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Let me go back. He knew that there was this process of what we call sanctification. And so as he's starting to see all these different people follow him, and um, truly some of them were accepting him into his heart, accepting him as Lord. And he ultimately knew that there was a process that was going to take place in their minds or in their hearts. And he said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so what Jesus was doing was he was preparing them and getting them ready for the changes that were going to take place. Because it was really easy if you're following Jesus and everyone's kind of in the crowd. But then there's going to be a tomorrow. And so when they go home tomorrow, they're going to have to say to their mom or dad or their uncles and aunts and all that stuff, hey, where were you yesterday? Oh, I was out with Jesus. Oh, you're out with Jesus. And so then there's going to be some arguing because Jesus didn't really fulfill what they believed ultimately he should fulfill. And so he learns to be hated and all those other kind of things. And so Jesus was getting them ready for that. Um, and so he's trying to prepare them for what's going to be going on in their lives if they truly are Christ followers. They need to have spiritual growth. In 1 Corinthians 2, excuse me, 3, 2 through 6, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says this. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you are not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. So you have this church. Paul had spent his time there ministering to them, teaching them, teaching Sunday school, doing Wednesday night services, Sunday or Saturday morning services, because they still followed the Jewish traditions back then. And as they're going through, he's telling them all about Jesus and what he's done for them. And, but he says they weren't ready for it, and even now they're not ready for it. For you still, they're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? Meaning, you say that you follow the Lord Jesus, but he's not in your heart. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely humans? And so he's addressing a real issue that was going on is, is that there was kind of division in the church. And they were saying, well, I follow Paul and his teachings. And then Apollos came by, and Apollos was teaching and they say, no, I follow Apollos. And the other one's like, no, Paul was the original. So he came to us, and so we follow him. And so they were arguing and bickering back and forth. And he says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. God's responsible for all of it. Paul chastised the Corinthian church because they oriented themselves back to the flesh. They went back to the flesh instead of being just believers in the Lord and allowing the Lord to work in their lives. And so as Jesus is talking to the crowd in today's passage... We know that in order to follow him, we're going to have to reject the Jewish traditions, and we're going to have to reject the Jewish customs, and we're going to end up ultimately, possibly being rejected by their families. Because when you get baptized in that time, basically what you're saying is you're saying, I cast off the Jewish faith, and I accept this new faith. It's a heresy. I accept following Jesus, and that's something that's going to be going to take families and tear them apart. And some of you may have experienced that in your own lives where you've come home and like, hey, I'm a Christian now. And then so then, you know, they just lay into you, your family members, and say, oh, well, you're going to be a goody two-shoes? You're going to do this and this and that? And so it may be worse. It may be, maybe that they accepted it. I know I've had many conversations with family members, and I sat at many kitchen tables, and I was like, this is... This is the way that I follow. I follow Jesus. 
And I want you to, too, because I want to know that you have an eternal relationship with him. And we're never going to be separated from God. And to um, not ever accept Jesus means another thing is, is that one day we will be eternally separated from each other. And that family member just saying, no, I can't. I can't. I'm not going to do it. Now, later on, that family member came around. Many people I've talked to while I was in ministry and talking to people just in general, I've planted or I've watered. And then later on, they come back and, man, I see change. I see true, genuine change. And so it's been beneficial. I still want, you know, I want to give that, you know, I sat next to them. Their shirt caught on fire spontaneously. I'm like, I know how to save you. You can accept Jesus. You know, I pour water on them and save them, and then they accept Jesus. I mean, that would be fantastic, but it's never happened. But I know that I planted and I watered, and Jesus is referring to the crowds, and they're going to have to deal with that struggle. And it is a struggle. It is a cost. It's the cost of discipleship. And so he continues on in Luke 14. He goes to verse 27. He says, Jesus says to this, he says to the crowd, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So that's really the thing that we have to do. So we have to bear our own cross. And our cross is basically an individualized thing. Everyone's cross is different. And we'll have different things that happen throughout our lifetime at different phases of our life. It comes in many forms. Um, maybe that you're not going to move to China as a missionary. And that's the thing. Ultimately, what we do is, is we, oftentimes when we read the scriptures, it's easy for us to go, well, when he's, when he's talking about bearing your cross, that means that you've got to go to China to be a missionary. You know? You've got to go to prison ministry and, you know, walk the, the prison floors and talk to people and that. That's, that's bearing your cross. No, bearing your cross is basically just living out your life every day and finding those little opportunities for you to share your faith in Christ. Share the opportunities with your friends that you're talking to, you know. The one that comes in and says, hey, their husband just left them. And you'd be like, uh, especially me, I'm, I, don't, I don't hug people, so they're not getting a hug from me. But I'll be like, hey, you know, you can go to Jesus and he'll take care of this. I know it's not something you can like see right now, but if you need help, let me know and I'll get you plugged into somebody who can help you out with this as you go through this this tough time. Because you're not alone in it. And that's the beauty of the church is that we have a community of people who have all these experiences. One of the neat things is is that... um, Kevin has done this for a few years now. In February, he goes back there because he wants to make sure that you guys know it's important. So he does it as a pastor, and he goes back there and watches these guys. And they're great kids. Once you get to know them, you find out, hey, these aren't so bad after all. <laughs> but the thing is, is that if you look at this, so, so what happened was He's like, hey, can you do one of the weeks? And I'm like, okay, my work schedule is I'm like kind of here every other week just because of the way they work. I work every other weekend I have off. And so I'm like, I can do this day. And so then he plugs in the rest of the days. It's amazing that if you really look at the passage of Scripture and who's been teaching these things and how God is at work in those particular Scriptures and the person who's presenting I like to teach at the academy because it keeps me fresh. And so I like to uh, teach so I like, have to study myself and keep you know, up on what's on 
uh, all the, the legal stuff and all that stuff. And the kids, they come up with kind of scenarios as they're going through academy. We, we do scenarios all the time. And so they come up with weird things. And they come up with weird questions. And so I have to look them up to make sure I know. But then that's also here. I like to make sure that every once in a while I get in the Word and I'm like putting this in application because it's important. But each one of the guys that are presenting, God's at work in that particular area of the Scripture. And that's not just by chance. That's by God working out all these things. And so as you go week to week hearing us, you're going to hear that. And I'll get back to that later on. So in order to meet the challenge of carrying your cross, I don't know what that cross is. And I know everyone in here has a cross to bear, has some pain or something that they're, they're toting around right now. You have to align yourself with the teachings of God. You have to align yourself with the, with the church. And you have to align yourself with God's purpose for you. And understand that he gave you that cross. That cross was custom carved. Just like in Psalm 139, when he knit you together in your mother's womb, your innermost parts, he also put that cross there. He put that together because he knew that he was going to give you something that you couldn't, he wasn't going to give you something that you couldn't bear. You can bear it with his help. Because if you come alongside him and take up his yoke, his yoke is easy. But you have to see it through the other end. You have to see through it to the other side. And so that's the issue is that sometimes what we say is, is we, we can't pay that cost. It's too much. We want, oftentimes, we want just the free stuff in life. My youngest son, he's a great, avid, um, he's probably intended to be a lawyer because he likes to argue all the time. And so when you give him some leeway in something, he's like, do you remember that commercial where the guy was like, it was a soda commercial and he would go through and say, and, after everything? That's my youngest son. He's like, and? So I'm like, yeah, you can go out. You can extend your curfew. You know, well, can I extend it another hour? He's always wanting to add more to it. And I don't blame him because, I mean, that's how he, he does get some great things out of it. But it does kind of like rub at you, you know, sometimes. But we as a society, don't we do the same thing? When we go to a church and we're looking at the church and we're evaluating the church, does it, does it meet our needs? Does it have programs for our kids? Are our kids really excited? You know, we ask our kids, did you have fun today? We want them to have fun, and it's not a bad thing to have, ask them if they had fun. But what really matters in, in a church? Do they have the, the facilities? Do they have the lights? All those things that create an emotional experience? Or are we looking for a church that really is a church without accounting for the building? We don't care what the building looks like. But are we a church? A community of people that know each other. So when you walk into the church, if you don't see people hugging on each other, except for me because I'm not a hugger, <laughs> there's a problem. If you don't see people talking to each other and saying, hey, how is this thing going? That's a problem. If people just come to church, they sit down, they have an emotional experience, and then they leave, that's a big problem. So if we evaluate the churches on those qualities, then we know that the church is coming together, 
And they're bearing that cross. And they're bearing that cross together. And they're living their lives together. Because you can't do it outside of that kind of environment. Otherwise, you're going to fail. So we're truly not paying the cost when we choose just to kind of do what we want to do, go to churches that we want to go to because it's a cool church or they have the cool things. Because we're not willing to invest in ourselves. We just pursue the immediate pleasure, mediocrity. We're just like the world. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, Paul writing to the Ephesian church, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you were once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I was reading this particular scripture in uh, my devotion time during the week, and it really just dawned on me. I'm like, man, you know, I've read this passage a million times, not a million times, but a couple hundred times at least in my lifetime. And, you know, it's just, it keeps striking me about how, how just really amazing it is, is that if we're not for God and we're not living in His way, then we're living in following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Basically, if we're not for God, we're for Satan, is what it's saying. And I know that's harsh too. And it's something that people in this society are like, oh, that's, that's hate speech. Well, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, no, it's not. It's not hate speech. It's love speech. Because if I love you enough, I care about you, I don't want you to live that way. I don't want you to have that lifestyle. If I truly care about you, I'm going to pull you out of that. If I don't care about you, I'm going to let you go, and I'll probably throw you in jail. Be, I'm done with you. But if I care about you, I'm going to say, stop. I had a fellow when I was in patrol, and it was a, it was a battery call. Battery is unwanted touch or strike. But the state statutes, um, they have a thing. If it's domestic in nature, meaning that you cohabitate as a family member with the other person, or you have a child in common, it's called domestic. Domestic violence is an issue. And what they do is, is one of the caveats is, is that if law enforcement responds to a domestic violence issue and we don't make an arrest, we have to articulate why we didn't make an arrest. If we determine that there was a primary aggressor and that there was an arrest that was needed and we don't make that arrest, we're guilty of a misdemeanor. So we can actually be thrown in jail for that. So it causes some kind of issues every once in a while. I had just a couple of weeks ago, one of my deputies responded to two brothers who were arguing. One brother wanted to get a ride to work. The other brother said, no, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. I want to sleep. So the brother was upset. His brother wouldn't wake up, so he takes water and throws it on him. The other brother, not knowing what to do, calls us. <laughs> my brother threw water on me. I'm like, okay. So the deputy calls me. He's in a jam because we've got unwanted touch or strike, meaning that he threw water on intentionally. So it's a crime. It's a battery, according to the Florida State Statute. I'm like, well, you have no choice. You have to take him to jail. So a brother went to jail for throwing water on another brother because he called us. Unfortunate thing. But I went to a call like that. 
So I get to the call. A lot of the ways that we get our calls, I don't know if you guys watch crime shows. I watch every episode of Cops back and forward. Um, you may not be subject matter experts in the Cops episodes, but, oh yeah, we got some good. <clears throat> so one of the things is that when you have your call screen come in, the, the dispatcher, they're feverishly hearing all these things as they come in on the calls. We have this new thing that's called Live 911. So we actually hear those 911 calls as they come in so we can respond faster to them. With that system, I have a much greater respect for our dispatchers. Because <laughs> you know the kind of people that they talk to? They're, they're all kinds of people. And they're, like, they're in their initial state where they're right, right up here. I get there you know, a couple minutes later, so they come and already calm down a little bit. So they have to deal with all that. But the screen came in and uh, the comments are coming in. And at this time, I didn't have a line of number one. This is a little bit back. It was the girlfriend had kicked him out of the house and locked the door and threw his stuff out. And then the next line was, frozen waffles was what they were arguing about. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, good to know. <laughs> so I go back to my... my uh, you know, my knowledge and understanding of frozen waffles and domestic violence battery. So I got the statute covered. I don't know why frozen waffles are an important thing in this. So I show up, be bopping up, pull up the residence. We pull up a little couple houses down, we walk up. I walk up, I'm like, I see this guy. He's out on his front porch. He's just kind of sitting there. So I'm like, okay. Hey, man, what's going on? How are you doing? She kicked me out of the house. She threw all my stuff out. She won't let me back in. I'm like, okay, well, what's this about? Thinking, hopefully there's something different than frozen waffles. Because I got something, I need something to work with. Frozen waffles. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. You mean I'm not here because of frozen waffles? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, so there's a story behind this, so tell me the story. So I learned this in the jail, you know, rapport. I got to talk to him, build rapport, show concern. I'm concerned now about these frozen waffles. <laughs> He says, yeah, I don't have a job, so I was at home. She went to work earlier today, and when she came back, she saw the frozen waffle box in the trash. And so she got all mad at me because she's like, who ate my frozen waffles? And I'm like, well, I did. I'm the only one here. I said, you ate your frozen waffles? He's like, yeah. And it was like, obviously a bad thing. <laughs> I was like, so I was like, why did you eat, why did you eat your frozen waffles? Because I was hungry. Well, why is she so mad you ate her frozen waffles? He says, well, she said that she bought those just for her. Well, I guess, you know, times are tough. And, you know, they were having a tough financial time. And so when she went to the store, she spent the extra $2 on getting the little box of frozen waffles. And she was like, I'm hiding these for myself because I go to work. He doesn't work. These are mine. And he's not going to have my frozen waffles. Well, he found them. And so after working all day, She's like, all I was looking forward to was I wanted some frozen waffles. And I had the syrup ready. I was going to pour them on there. And it was going to be glorious. It was my one, my one escape from reality for the day. I said, I can see it. So then I go, okay, no one hit each other? No, no one hit each other. She threw your stuff. I'm like, okay, all right. So this was an opportunity where I, we, we didn't have many calls going on, and so I wasn't having to scramble because, you know, when it's going crazy, I don't have that time. But this is one of those times where I'm like, this is a Jesus moment. 
And so I got some time. So I said, hey, man, it sounds to me like it's not really about frozen waffles. What do you mean it's not about frozen? I said, we can go buy new frozen waffles. What it is is you guys probably need some help. You got any, anybody you can talk to? No, we're all alone. They live out in some uh, trailer out there in the uh, area of Inwood, and they had no family. They kind of just ended up here because she got a job, so they moved out here. It's like, okay. It sounds like you might need some counseling, like, of how to be a couple. I said, maybe you might need to marry her, but I'm not going to, you know, push that on you, but you need some counseling. Well, we can't afford counseling. I said, oh, I know where you can get counseling. I said, now, you don't want to be creepy, but if you go to a church, don't do this on the first day. Don't do it the first Sunday. Promise me you won't do this the first Sunday. It's like, okay. I said, but go to church. Go to there for about three or four weeks. Just hang out. Sit and soak. Let the pastor know you're there. Say, hey, how's it going? But do not mention frozen waffles and the fact that you need counseling. So after about four weeks of you going there, I want you to then go to the pastor. I want you to say, hey, can we get some help? We need to talk to somebody. I said, I guarantee that pastor, if it's from a good church, he's going to welcome you in. He's going to either talk to you himself or he's going to have somebody he knows he's going to get you in touch with. Okay. Now I sat there for about 45 minutes just talking to him after 10 minutes of figuring out that there was no crime. I put some comments in there, no crime. I left out all the frozen waffle stuff because I was done talking about frozen waffles. But that was an opportunity for me in my life to really stop and really to truly care about somebody in my community and give them off, and offer them the best advice I could. And so I took that moment, and I did it. And some people are like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Yeah, you can. That's part of your cross. It's really easy. Once you start, you figure out, hey, it's just like working out. You know, you're trying to lift the little 20-pound barbell, and you're like, oh, this is heavy. Once you start doing enough, man, it gets easy. You can do it over and over and over again. We as a church are really failing our society because we're not taking these opportunities that we are presented with every day. And so what we're doing is we're seeing our society continue. One thing I have down here is just look at divorce rates. And so I did some research looking at divorce rates. And I don't know if you guys have heard, like there are some people out there that say divorce in the church is just the same percentage as it is on the outside. The problem is, is that if you look at the real criteria of a churchgoer, if you, if you ask the person, like, do they, are they a Christian? They're going to have the same equal numbers. So if you are on the phone, you say, hey, have you been divorced? And you say, are you a Christian? And it's going to be equal, like, whatever that number is. If you ask that person, do you attend church on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, or are you involved in the church in other ministry areas where you serve regular, on a regular basis? you see that 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 percentage drops still significantly. It's because the church is important. It does change people's lives. It changes their heart. I've been married for 27 years. I've only thought about killing my wife about five times so far. 
she's probably, probably killed it, thought about killing me about 100 million times. She just thought about it too, just now. And divorce happens. And Jesus is on the side of the victim in anything. And so he's on the, he's on the side of the, the divorcees. He's on the side of whoever is the victim. And Jesus is willing to bring you through that. But in addition to divorce, we have financial hardships that we experience. We can come together as a church. We can take care of that stuff. We can, we can fix that. We can create a plan where you can get out of that mess. And that's where then Jesus goes into this next verse. And so you wonder, like, first he was talking about how you're going to have to hate your family and those kind of things. But then when you really look at it, it all kind of makes sense. Because he's, I think he's really ultimately talking about his church. And so in verse 34, he says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restricted or restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, and is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we as a church, the body of believers, not this building, not any other building, but the body of believers, if, if we're not salty, we're no good. We got to still be the salt of the earth. We got to be out there in that community, and we got to take those moments where we can talk to a guy who's in an argument about frozen waffles. There's people around you every day at work, wherever you go out tomorrow, while you're talking about the Super Bowl, but you can invest in their lives. You can say, hey, how are you doing? And you're going to have to get past the initial, I'm good, I'm good. You have to say, no, how, really, really, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? You got to show, show that concern. You can't just let it be where we walk by each other and, yeah, it's good. I know I'm just as guilty of it because I get tired and I get you know, frustrated with just dealing with people and those kind of things. But every once in a while, I have to force myself to say, stop, invest in that person, find out how they're really doing. It's because we don't want to lose the saltiness. We don't want to lose that saltiness. So, <clears throat> the cost of the gospel is free. The cost of the discipleship is uncalculated. I can't calculate it. The cost of not being a disciple of Christ is eternity separated from God. It's following Satan in his way. It's going down a path where you're always fighting over frozen waffles and get kicked out and have no option that's left and it's an option where you throw water on your brother and you have no option left but to call law enforcement and then everyone's in jail. All these things, they, they all add up. But there's a cost to everything and, and we're paying the cost no matter what. Politicians like to say, it's not going to cost us anything. But in reality, we know it does cost us. In the long term, somebody's going to have to pay that bill, right? Just like in life. Someone's going to have to pay the bill, and oftentimes what it is is either we're going to pay it or the guy who has unlimited resources, he can pay it. I'd rather turn all that stuff over to him and let him deal with it, let him pay that bill. Man, that's a great thing. It's like getting free lunch. Sometimes it was a, sometimes we get blessed. I, I was, you know, a young deputy. We were having tough times because, you know, we, 
had a big drop in pay, and my wife wasn't working. She was trying to work from home and stuff like that. So we're just trying to make ends meet. And we're celebrating just one time where we have enough money to go to Chili's because they got the, the, the little deal came out. And so we meet up for lunch like at 3 o'clock because that's when we can meet up. And I got my kids with me, and we're sitting down, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be expensive. It's going to be like some $40, you know? But now when I take them out, it's like 100 bucks because they're teenagers. But I'm like, you know, it's, but it's good. We're, we're, we're hanging out. Waitress comes up. I say, hey, I need my bill. I'm in uniform, so I got to make sure I pay. She's like, no, it's covered. Someone took the time to just pay for me and my whole family. It's a nice thing. It's a nice gesture. That's the way it is when we're with him. He's paying the whole bill. And it's great. And you're like, man, someone really cares about me. And he really does. He died on the cross for you and your sins, whatever it may be. And no sin is too bad. Trust me. I've seen the bad ones. But he still died for them. So you can accept his gift. That's free. But then, just be willing to take the cost of bearing that cross, investing in people's lives. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and thank you for the many, many blessings you've given to us. Truly, God, your scripture just, when we just take the time to really examine it and see it for what it is and how it can apply to our lives, I'm amazed how much you love me, you love those around me, and how you invite me into a relationship with you and to share you with other people. So, Father, thank you for that opportunity. Lord, help me to be who you want me to be this week. Help me to to see who you want me to see. Help me to stop and take some time with whoever you want me to, to interact with and to share your love with. And, Father, just help me to just pay that cost of discipleship because you've given me so much already. It's in your name we pray. Amen.